Well, it is very good to be with you again. We have uh, enjoyed our time in Norway with our family, our uh, son and daughter-in-law, Matt and Deborah, and with our grandchildren, and uh, seeing the beauty of your country. I've told people back at home, oh, this is our third time in Norway, that I said it's hard to take a bad picture in Norway. Everything <laughs> looks so beautiful that uh, we just have really enjoyed it. And this is a real delight to be able to share God's Word in the country of my forefathers. And some of those were pastors as well and served. Um, we have one line that actually goes back to the time of the Reformation and were some of the first uh, pastors who came in after that time into Norway. So I want to share with you today from uh, John's Gospel, as Matthew read, John chapter 6, verses 1 to 21. And I pray that God will use this word as an encouragement in your heart today. When I think back on the last year and a half, it's been a difficult year for all of us. I mean, going through this pandemic and having to deal with restrictions on meeting, on worship, on work, on all the different things that have come up, the difficulty in travel has been hard. And in March of 2020, when the pandemic began to take root in the United States, we went into uh, stay-at-home orders and they were urging everybody to work from home. And so... Uh, that's what I did in my work. I work for our denomination in uh, the retirement of benefits plan, helping churches to provide for their pastors in that area. I had served as a pastor in a local church for 32 years prior to that, and so I enjoyed that kind of blessing of working with a local congregation. Uh, my wife had just recently retired from the school where she worked, and so here we were at home together all day. Uh, and we were kind of wondering, well, well, what do we do now? I have work to do, but my wife loves to bake. Uh, her favorite show on television is The Great British Bake Off. I don't know if you have ever seen that, but uh, it's a baking competition. And so she got inspired and she began to bake. She's very good at it. She would bake uh, pastries and she'd bake desserts and then she started baking bread and I love bread. <laughs> and I started to get a little worried about uh, COVID-19, uh, not the virus as much as putting on 19 pounds of weight <laughs> from being at home and eating all these delicious foods. And she would bake multigrain bread, she baked cardamom bread, she baked banana bread, um, babka bread. I didn't even know what that was, but that's bread with delicious chocolate kind of swirls through it, and, and it was great. And, and so there were a lot of uh, positive things there, but I, I began to think about how meaningful bread is to so many of us. I mean, when I look back at my childhood, one of my favorite memories was my mom baking bread at home, and that aroma of bread would fill the house. And as a kid, I loved it when she would bake uh, buns, and they'd come out of the oven, and they were warm, and I'd put some butter on them, and I'd put some raspberry jam on them or something like that, and I could just eat them, you know, one after the other. They were so delicious. And I would guess that many of you also have memories about bread. 
the things that come to mind when I think about that. And if you were to talk to the disciples of Jesus and you were to ask them about a memory that they have of bread, I think this passage, the feeding of the 5,000, would be the first thing that would come to all of their minds. Do you know that this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, is the only miracle besides the resurrection that is recorded in all four Gospels? Now, Jesus did many amazing things, many miracles that they could have told us about, but some you find only in one Gospel or two or maybe three. But the feeding of the 5,000 was told in all four Gospels. Why is it so significant? What was it that made this particular miracle stand out in their mind that they all felt that this had to be told? Well, I think it's because of what it tells us about Jesus. It reveals something very important about who Jesus is. And in the message today, I'm going to bring out four aspects of that. First of all, It tells us that Jesus is the one that Moses wrote about. Last Sunday, in our readings from the Old Testament, we read Deuteronomy 18.15, where Moses wrote that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers, and you must listen to him. Moses wrote that 1,400 years before Christ was born before he came to earth. And here was this prophecy that there's going to be this great prophet, Messiah, who would come, and you must listen to him. And so what happened was the Jewish people knew this prophecy and there developed certain expectations that went along with that. They thought that when this prophet came, well, Moses led us in the wilderness. He provided bread for us in the wilderness. And so they thought that when the Messiah came, he would do that. In fact, later in chapter 6 and verses 30 and 31, you'll see that expressed. They asked him, they asked Jesus, What miraculous sign then will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the man in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. But Jesus will correct that. It wasn't Moses who gave them that bread in the wilderness. It was God who gave that to him. And and he will talk more, and you'll cover that next week, in the whole meaning of bread and how that applies to Jesus. But here what we see in this miracle of the feeding of the 4,000 is after they saw, feeding of the 5,000, excuse me, after they saw what had happened, if you look at verses 14 and 15, it says, after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. They began to believe that Jesus was the one that Moses wrote about. Well, they were right about who he is. He is indeed the Messiah who had come into the world, but they were wrong about what he would do at this time. In verse 15, it said that they came and they wanted to make him king by force. I mean, they had this belief that when the Messiah came, he would overthrow Rome. 
you know, let's toss off our political enemies. He's going to be this great, you know, kind of military hero that's going to lead us to victory. They had their expectations about what the Messiah would be, but that's not what Jesus came to do at this time. He came to be our Savior. He's the one that would deal with the most serious problem we have. That is our sin that separates us from God. And he came to give his life as a ransom for us and pay that debt that we owed. Really, what these people were doing is they were trying to make God into their image and their expectations. And that is something that people do as well today. People have expectations about God. And a lot of people will think about God as kind of a, a kind, benevolent grandfather who sort of gives his children and grandchildren good things and is generous. And, and when they misbehave, he sort of winks at their misbehavior or their sin and says, well, you know, boys will be boys or girls will be girls. And he kind of lets it go. And, and they want a God like that. They don't want a God who's holy and just, who is all-powerful, to whom we are accountable in our behavior, our actions. They want to make God in their image. And others, as we saw last Sunday, will come to the scripture and they'll say, well, I think Jesus was a good teacher. Or I like some of the things that he said, and they'll pick and choose. One of the early presidents in the United States was a man named Thomas Jefferson. And he wanted to remove all the supernatural things that were said about Jesus and just kind of get down to who is this real person. And so he took his Bible and in the Gospels, he began to cut out anything that he saw that was supernatural and just leave the other statements about Jesus or things that he said. And what did he have when he was done? He just had a Bible with a lot of holes in it and a few moral principles. But he didn't have the real Jesus. You see, the writers of the Gospels told these stories as eyewitnesses. Again, they wanted us to see Jesus as he is, as they saw him. They wanted to hear his teaching. They want us to experience what that is and to know and see his power and authority and the truth of his word. And we must listen to him. The Gospels proclaim that Jesus is the one that Moses wrote about. He is indeed the Messiah. And secondly, we see in this passage that Jesus is the one who satisfies our hunger. The miracle we read here in the first part of John chapter 6 took place on the far side of the Sea of Galilee near a small town called Bethsaida. Most of Jesus' time was spent on what would be the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee where Capernaum was and where Peter lived. But this now is the far side. He's moving over toward the Gentile area. He's not all the way over into the Gentile area on the east side, but he is by Bethsaida. So you can think of it if you have a picture in your mind of the map of the Sea of Galilee. He's north of the Sea of Galilee, but a little to the east. And this uh, also a historical detail says that it was also called the Sea of Tiberias. 
Well, Tiberias was a new city that was built on the west side of the Sea of Galilee by Herod Antipas. It was built in the year A.D. 26. He was the son of Herod the Great, and he wanted to build this city, you know, and be a great builder like his father. And so he wanted people to start to name not only the city, but this sea or this lake after him. So you'll find it was referred to both ways as the Sea of Galilee and the Sea of Tiberias. And then uh, we see as Jesus looks out and he sees this great crowd of people coming toward him, he looked up and he said to Philip, Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, why did he ask Philip? Well, one of the reasons may be that Philip was from Bethsaida. So he knew the area. It'd be like, you know, coming to you and saying, you know, Peter, uh, where in Stavanger do we buy, you know, bread enough for people to eat? Or where do we, where should we get something for all these people to come? And Philip is a realist. He's a numbers guy. I, I understand Philip. You know, and so he's looking at this crowd and he sees about 5,000 men. That's just the men. And, you know, we got wives, we got children. I mean, it's going to be at least 10,000 people, maybe more that have come. And so he starts figuring that out. Let's see, a denarii is a day of wages, you know, and he comes to the conclusion. He goes, even if we had eight months wages, that wouldn't be enough to give them a bite. You know, I mean, it's just like, Lord, this is impossible. We can't do this. What was Jesus doing? He was testing Philip. We're in this period of time where Jesus is training the 12 to carry on the ministry. And he wants them to learn certain things during this time. And so Philip looks at this and sees it as impossible. But Jesus already knew what he was going to do, the scripture says. He just did this to test him. And so, uh, what, what I think Jesus was really asking Philip and asking us is, how big is your God? How big is your God? You know, our resources are limited, but God's resources are unlimited. And there are times in our life where he tests us. He lets us see our need for him. And you know that's really an act of grace. He is teaching us as well how much we need him. You know, and I think that's really part of what's been happening here during COVID. We have prayed many times for Matt and Deborah and for all of you in the church and thinking of how hard this is to start a church during a pandemic. I mean, I, I was a church planting pastor who started our church, and we had about, you know, uh, 10 families that we began with, and the church began to grow, but it wasn't during a time like this. And yet, look at what God has done. He has raised up interested people. He's raised up you, believers, in three different areas who want to bring the gospel to the people of Norway. And that's just the start. And it will ripple out from you as God uses you and you are witnesses in each of these areas. And his word will go forth. I think of in history what God has done. And sometimes we can learn and be encouraged by historical examples. And I think of what happened 
to the church in China. After World War II, there were a number of soldiers who had fought in that war that were Christians. And they, um, in in their time overseas and other places, began to learn more about the world and they saw the need and God raised up many of them to go back as missionaries now to many different countries. And many went to China and there were missionaries in China. Well, in 1949, the communists came to power in China. And in 1953, they kicked out all of the foreign missionaries. They viewed them as a threat. And so the country was closed down. And many people wondered, what is going to happen to the church? It is just so small. It's so, so fragile, you know. And they began to pray for those believers. Well, what God did was amazing. The church went underground, but those who knew the Lord began to tell their neighbors. They continued to share the word. They preached. They taught. They put their life on the line. Many of them were arrested or put in prison. But the church flourished and grew. And by the time things began to open up again in the 80s, where we began to hear the reports, there were reports of 100 million believers in China. God did it. In spite of the limitations that were put on, God began to do a work. And when I think about what God is doing here in Norway, I pray, Lord, would you do it again? You know, I've talked to Norwegians like yourself who have told me about the revivals that took place under Hans Nilsson Hauge and the work that happened. And do you know this has been a fact that has always encouraged me? Um, Patrick Johnstone in the book Operation World that gives statistics on what has happened in countries all over the world in terms of their faith. He said this about Norway. He said that in 1900, in the early 1900s, no nation had sent out more missionaries per capita or for the size of the country than Norway. Norway! God was using this country to send out Uh, those who would bring his gospel to all different parts of the world. And I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for those Norwegian forefathers and grandmothers and, uh, you know, who prayed for their children and their grandchildren and those who would come after them. Is God doing that again? I pray he is. May he stir our hearts. And then... A third point that I see in this text is that Jesus is the one who invites us to join in the work. And we see that in verses 8 to 13. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. And he said, here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Andrew is one of the disciples who shows up at different points in John's gospel, and he's always bringing somebody to Jesus. I think Andrew was an evangelist, or at least he was really thinking about other people. So in John chapter 1, when he meets Jesus, he goes and finds his brother Peter, and he brings Peter to Jesus. 
In this chapter, he finds this small young boy. In chapter 12, it's Andrew and Philip who meet these Greeks who want to see Jesus. And he brings them to Jesus. And it's a symbol of what was going to happen in the future when the gospel would be preached not just to the Jewish people, but to all nations, to all peoples. So Andrew comes and he has this young boy and this boy has a lunch with him. Five small barley loaves, two small fish. I don't know if you contextualize and you say he had a little bit of lefson, a little bit of herring, you know, or what he had for a, a lunch, but it was the food of the poor. The bread, barley loaves, that was what a poor family might have. And the little fish, not much. How can they feed so many? There are parallels here, too, that go back to the Exodus when Israel was in the desert and they came to Moses and they complained about the food that they had. All we have is this manna every day. You know, we just got this manna to eat. And they tired of it and they wanted meat to eat. And Moses is like, God, where am I going to get meat to feed all these people? But God would provide the quail in the wilderness. So Jesus said to the disciples, have the people sit down. And he had them break into groups as they sat. And he took those five loaves and two small fish. And he lifted it up to the Father. And he prayed. And he thanked God for his provision. And he asked God to bless it. And he multiplied the loaves and the fishes. And they began to distribute it. One group, another, another, another. And the disciples were there. And when everyone had eaten as much as they wanted, I find this very interesting. Jesus said, I want you to gather up all the leftover bread that was there. And they gathered it up, and each one of the disciples, 12 disciples, had a large basket of bread left over. And could you see them coming back to Jesus, and they're standing there with this large basket, and they're all looking at each other? And the text is specific, too. It's not a small basket. It was a large basket that was used to carry things like fish or other cumbersome items. And there they are. And they got to just be laughing and shaking their head and going, what did we just see? No wonder that miracle made such an impression on them. Commentators have noted Twelve baskets may be symbolic, too, that there was one for each of the tribes of Israel. But definitely it was an example of how God can provide for us in abundance if we will trust him. God can do that for us, too. And fourth, what I see in this text and the miracle that follows is the miracle where Jesus walks on the water. The people had come, he knew they wanted to make Jesus king by force. Now is not the time. This is not what Jesus came to do. So he wanted to send the disciples away, not let them get carried away by the crowd. And he himself wanted to go up on a mountain to pray. So he sent the disciples in the boats to go back to the other shore. And they're out there, and it says, When evening came, they went down to the lake where they got into a boat, and they set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. And they came up against a strong wind. Now, 
several of them were fishermen. They knew that lake. And on the Sea of Galilee, it's not a huge lake. It is, you know, if I convert this correctly, you know, it's about six miles wide or about 10 kilometers wide and about 12 miles, miles long or maybe 20 kilometers long. But it is situated about 650 feet below sea level. And so what happens when night falls, the cool air will rush in over the hills and the mountains on the west from the Mediterranean, and it will collide with this hot desert air above the sea, and storms can build up very quickly. And it can get very violent with the wind and the, the waves. And so one of the reasons why they wanted to leave and they were worried about how late it was getting is you don't want to be caught on the sea at night. You want to be able to get through and off that sea. And so here they are and they're rowing as hard as they can and they're trying to go against this wind and they're trying to get back and it feels like they aren't making headway at all. And then all of a sudden... You read that they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. They were terrified. And Jesus said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. And then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Jesus is not only the one who meets our needs and he's not only the one who invites us to join in the work, but Jesus is the Lord over earth and sea. He controls it all. In Scripture, the sea is often a symbol for things that are chaotic in our world. The sea back then and even somewhat today was a mystery. I mean, it, it was deep, it was powerful, it could overwhelm you, storms could come up, people were lost at sea. And so it symbolizes this kind of chaos, the things that are out of control in our world. We can't control it, but Jesus can. And with a word, he can calm the sea. Or with a word, as he entered that boat, it says that they immediately, they reached the other side. It is a story rich with imagery. And in both of these miracles, the feeding of the 5,000 and where Jesus was walking on the water, we see the disciples who reach their limits. They, they can't control these circumstances. All they can do is trust Jesus. And Jesus is training him that that's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to trust me when life is hard. I'm asking you to trust me even when you don't know the way and you don't know what may happen next. And I think about that for us. You know, we need to learn these lessons that we can't fix everything. We can't solve every problem. We can't do it all, but God can. And he can work in his timing, and he will. So how would Jesus want us to respond to this season that we are in? He wants us to trust him. And sometimes that means, Lord, all I can see is the next step. That's okay. I'm going to take the next step. We're going to start this church. We're going to reach out to this person. We're going to, we're going to pray here, 
And I encourage you to pray for one another. Pray for your pastor, your elders, your leaders. Pray for one another. Pray for this church. Pray for your family. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for your country. That God would pour out His Spirit and open hearts to the gospel. That they might come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. I would also encourage you, don't fall into the trap of grumbling or complaining. You know, we see that so much in our world. Sometimes it's just really disheartening, the comments that are made whether it's on social media or in the news or the fighting or all those things. And it can weigh us down in our own spirit. Choose to be thankful. Choose to be grateful. Choose to let your words be words that will build up one another. Love one another. Scripture says, do nothing out of selfishness or vain conceit, but act in a way that will build your brothers and sisters up in love. And finally, join in his work. Be a witness for Christ. Share the hope that you have found with others. And pray that God would use you to be that kind of witness who would help to bring a friend, a neighbor, a classmate, someone else that you know to the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, how much we need you. You have said that in your word, that apart from you, we can do nothing. You're the vine, we're the branches, we need to be grafted into you. And we need that relationship to be healthy and strong. So these things like the Lord's table, the confession of sin, the listening to your word and obedience are all part of how you keep us healthy and growing in our relationship with you. And I pray, Father, that you would pour out your spirit on this church and on the churches that are being planted and Hamar and Ulan, that you would do your work and continue to spread the gospel that many, many more might come to know you. And that one day we would stand and look back on what you have done with amazement. We pray that you would receive all the glory and the honor for that. And we thank you for the privilege that we have to be called sons and and daughters of God and to be part of your family. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.